This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 110 of Breaking Banks Europe. We have got a couple of extra special guests today. In fact, we, well, we, we're going to start with you, Kevin, because it's your, um, we've got Kevin Johnson from ING, and it's your, your anniversary, isn't it? It is my anniversary. I'm actually from Euroclear. Um, I've been there for a couple of years, although we've been on lockdown. Um, but yeah, um, I was on last Christmas, um, and obviously you like me so much at Christmas time that you welcome me back. I'm so sorry. I had it in my head that you were ING because I thought uh, well, you're still saved in my phone. It's kevin.johnson.ing.com. I apologize about that. That's on me. Um, <laughs> no, I, 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 moved, I moved over to Euroclear and I'm leading our early stage ideation. Um, so really sort of sitting at the top of the ideation funnel, uh, working with business colleagues to try and make ideation a, or innovation a reality. Excellent, excellent. I've I've got a little bit later on, and if you don't mind, can you just pretend you're still with ING just for that bit, if that's if that's okay? <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> excellent. And also joining us, we have fintech specialist Sophie Gubard. Got there. I I always mispronounce your surname, Gubard, right? You made it. That's fine. Gibo. Yes. That's fine. Gibo. <laughs> Gibo. Excellent. And joining us, we have fintech specialist Sophie Gubo. Sophie, how are you doing today? I'm super happy to be to have made it to England. <laughs> so <I'm> very happy. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, we are recording this uh, on the Monday, the twentieth of December. But you'll we will you will be listening to this on December the thirtieth. So uh, a, a lot could have happened in the world over the last uh, over the last ten days. So um, oh, it's a shame, you know, lockdowns happened. Ah, oh, it's a shame, you know. I think it's lucky that no lockdowns happened. We can kind of edit as 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 needed. Let's um let's kind of go into the first story that I wanted to bring up and, and kind of put to you guys because um, it was kind of um kind of a wee bit of an interesting one, uh, which is Bonk being one of the first digital challengers to start to offer to offer mortgages. Um, this obviously comes across the the back of Bonk's. It's weird thinking that Bonk is is only in Series A funding. Like they've done incredibly well, and it's been it's, it's been on, on organic growth. So it's their first kind of proper proper big raise, but they're now starting again to to, to move into the into the mortgage space. Um, Kevin, did you have any 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 thoughts on this in the first instance? I think it's a really interesting one because if you look at the challenger bank space and you sort of look at this from a traditional bricks and mortar bank, you can probably copy a lot of what they're doing. You everybody can have the app. Everybody can go for the UX. And it's going to come down to one thing, and that's going to be cost. A cost base for a bricks and mortar bank is in the tens, if not hundreds of euros. And recently I was reading uh, Simon Taylor's weekly sort of newsletter. He was talking about Monzo's cost per user being two euros. So if you're going to get into a space where you need to scale and to actually sort of scale those users, you've got control of your technology and you've got that modern scalable technology stack, 
then I think this is an area now where the bricks and mortar banks need to start to really pay attention. And I think the way that Bunk have done this is quite clever because they're not doing the mortgages themselves. They're partnering with a mortgage specialist. So they're not going to have to take on necessarily the risk-rated assets. They're really going to be able to offer the, the traditional sort of selling points of a fintech, this, the slick UX, the great design, the great features. And then they've got the cost base to actually sort of be able to scale that up. So I think it's going to be a really interesting one. I Maybe the first, but I don't think it will be the last one. So I think there'll be a lot of players, uh, Revolut and people like this will probably be watching this space. Because if you think about this, what, what do the banks really want? They want your monthly paycheck and ideally your mortgage, because mm -hmm. that's where they're getting the sort of all the data about you. And I think this is going to open up a few eyes and it's going to create a lot of interesting conversations inside some banks, I think. Absolutely. So, Sophie, did you have uh, th thoughts on, on, on Bonk? Yeah, so like they have been around forever, like, uh, but in a good way, you know, <laughs> uh, I was like looking at them when uh, I was back in my Fedor days when uh, when I launched, um, well, Fedor uh, Bank in, uh, in the UK. And so we, they were very early stage uh, there. But as you say, um, Ali, like uh, they are just in their Series A, uh, they have been growing their customer base, really establishing in their initial country, Netherlands, then rolling out uh, uh, across uh, borders, they haven't made so much noise, but uh, uh, basically they they have been growing steadily. Uh, on the mortgage side, I I would want to say finally, <laughs> yes. you know, like I like my my big dream would definitely to not have my mortgages with traditional uh, banks. Like the, the process, most of the time are horrendous. Um, Nothing is digital, like in France, like where I have my house. I, I think it's around 500 pages like that are printed that you kind of need to sign so that they scan it again to, to put your application through. That just doesn't work in, uh, in our world. Um, and like an observation is would be definitely, well, they are the first one in Europe. Atom has been doing it uh, in, uh, in the UK for, for some time. But the question is, why is other uh, neobanks are not moving into this space faster, you know, because... I mean, they need to uh, to get deposits and then they need to put it somewhere. And mortgage is, is definitely um, a place that is kind of ripe for um, for disruption. So like I would be really interested to see who will be following up next in, uh, in, uh, in, in that. But I think there is a definite need uh, in, uh, in the market for, for disruption. I'm very much like you. My, my mortgage is with, uh, it's with Halifax. Um, but I, I would love to have had a mortgage with like Starling, Monzo, Revolut, hell, you know, anyone. It, it, I, I don't necessarily want to go for the bricks and mortar one. But yeah. in speaking of the of the UK, what I thought was kind of fascinating during the bounce back loan and the Siebel's loan schemes was it was a level playing field. All banks, great and small, kind of had access to the funds that are for, for the same rate. And all of a sudden, you have Starling Bank let's be realistic, running absolute rings around the likes of HSBC and Santander in terms of these, these business loans. It's because they had the technology there and they finally have a level playing field to access the funds. That's why I still end up going you know, to Halifax, not because 
I love walking into a branch, but because of the nature of the fact they've got so many branches over the country, they've been around for so long, they have access to to, to funds at a much uh, a much cheaper rate than the likes of uh, than the likes of Starling, Monzo, etc. Um, so I, I kind of almost think that if there was some sort of mortgage scheme akin to the bounce back loan scheme, that would one of the knock on effects for that would be to quite quite dramatically, I think, kill the uh, the high street, the high street banks, in, in many ways, mortgages are profitable as hell. Yeah, and I think the bit that Sophie was saying about having to print out, sign five hundred pages, and getting them rescanned in—it's kind of the digital versus digitalization. Uh, a lot of people are taking paper, they're turning it into a PDF, and you still have to sign and do everything you have to do before. And I think fintech sort of come in with a different way of looking at it. Uh, and if if this is applied properly through Bunk, it could be a game changer. Mortgages are profitable as hell, so I'm guessing the big boys are going to be, and girls are going to be looking at this and going, "What can we do to compete?" And and I think it it is it's a bit of it's going to come down to cost. I mean, yes, they've got the scale as well, but that is going to if it gets leveled out, it's it's going to be a very interesting place. Absolutely. Well, here's hoping. Uh, Sophie, would would you change your mortgage provider to a, to a chat to a to, to bank if you could? At same uh, cost for sure. <laughs> like I mean, it's it's an absolute. Uh, I mean, it's an absolute no-brainer. So, th- it's a bit difference between um, uh, France and the UK. So in France, you do it once for t- like the time of your mortgage, so fifteen years, twenty years, twenty-five years. Which means, okay, like you go normally through the pain once and then you're done. So I wouldn't specifically do it, redo it for France. But in the UK, when you need to do redo your mortgages like every two to uh, to five years and the pain of it, you know, like if you need to change your uh, provider for whatever reason, I would definitely prefer to, to do it once and for all with, <laughs> with bank and know that next time I will get the electronic signature, you know, stuff, exciting stuff like that. <laughs> in 2021 <laughs> then uh, then to have to to show up to a branch to prove my identity for whatever reason um because i have done it already five times to to get an education on my uh phone and to show it in the branch and i i, I just don't know yeah like i mean it's a no-brainer isn't it oh what a beautiful segue um so obviously speaking of course about you know knowing knowing your identity um, there's been a few, a few, it, it has, it's one of those things that's happened over the last week that it hasn't been kind of one singular story, but the one that kind of caught my eye was, um, uh, KYC specialist, uh, truly you, who I actually love by the way, cause solid, solid mission. Um, and they announced six new customers uh, in the cryptocurrency space. And it kind of got me thinking that there's a lot of, um, crypto is so mainstream now. I said, even my, even my gran has said to me, Oh, have you heard of Bitcoin? I was like, oh, no, Grant. Tell me, tell me more about it. Um, is it, it seems that we're starting to kind of be a lot more regulation and and and, and, and smart regulation around crypto, but also regulation. Oh, sorry, regulation in KYC, even when it's not required by law. Um, a, a good example is um, Ziglu, who are actually you. You can go and you, they, you know you verify yourself and such, and your <laughs> funds are. Are protected up to eighty, up to eighty-five thousand. It's it's a clever, it's a clever way that it, it's set, it's set up. Um, so yeah, a lot of stuff happening around KYC and crypto. I mean, Sophie, does does this um, 
does KYC kind of defeat the point of, of some cryptos? I mean, well, t- t- tell us your, your thoughts here. No, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, there is only one way to the mainstream. When you start competing, like with a competing system with banks and governments, if you don't go through self-regulation and, and push towards that, you won't make it, you know? Like it's when we saw, um, it was Libra uh, back in the day before DM, like when they tried to not be regulated, like it it just died, right? So now there is DM with, I honestly don't even know what's going on with um, with with DM these days. So I'm, yeah, I haven't seen it so much in the news. But basically, trying to go outside of regulation is never the the way to go. Self regulation makes sense because, like, so it was a report from Crypto.com back in uh, in July uh, that was saying now, like in the last year, in last twelve months between July. 2020 and 2021, we went from 50 million crypto users to 200, more than 200 million. I mean, yes, it's happening. Like crypto is going to uh, to uh, the mainstream, and the way to go even more mainstream is definitely to uh, to put in place, of course, the KYC, which is kind of regulated. But even for the crypto platform to uh, to self regulate and to uh, to seek uh, like EMI regulation, to seek like crypto licenses wherever um, it's required. Um, I think so. There is this move in that uh, side, like the top crypto platform wanted to. Um, to achieve those level of, of regulations to actually like be able to attract more and more customers. But there is also the other side where, of course, like governments and European Union are, um, are looking to, uh, to bring more um, regulations around it, uh, AML5, uh, MICA that will be um, upcoming. So I think we are just realizing that crypto is here to stay. Um, uh, blockchain technology as well, that Web3 kind of is a thing and that it's the next stage of evolution and that now let's organize to uh, to make it happen. Um, and like I, I saw, I don't... I saw an article like yesterday that was saying, oh, it was actually Coinbase, I think, that was saying like they were aiming at 1 billion uh, crypto users, not Coinbase, but in general in the world within the next five years, you know? So there's no choice. Uh, I think if you sort of take a bit of a step back and understand what regulation's for, it's not there for sort of putting red tape and putting things in the way. It's really about protecting people. Yeah. And if crypto really wants to grow up and actually become part of the mainstream, it needs to be trusted by the people who are going to use it. So beyond the transparency that it brings, beyond the new features it brings, actually embracing the regulation that's there already and sort of being that step ahead and saying, actually, we're okay with this, I think it will help it sort of grow up. Because, yeah, I think if you look at a lot of where crypto started, it was very easy to to sort of point at it and go like this. But if you actually really understand what goes on beneath on the blockchain, it is very traceable. So I think that the idea that regulation coming into this space should be seen as a good thing, I think, yeah, it it will help it grow. And I think the the whole move from cryptocurrency to Web3, almost a sort of rebranding of it as well, that's going to be part of this sort of adopting it into the mainstream. I saw somebody- I love it. I I never realized that it was a rebranding, but it is kind of a rebranding. Somebody said it's the most amazing thing that somebody had ever done, which was to rebrand cryptocurrency as Web 3.0. 
It takes away all of the negative connotations of the early days and sets it up for the future. So putting regulation in with that as well, it's now a regulated way to enable the future of the internet. It kind of makes sense. Is putting back the power, uh, like the, the the power in the hands of the people, right? I mean, it's the whole point of crypto and blockchain is that going from centralized to uh, to decentralized. So, if we remove like the early day, not history, not that it's bad, but just it was like very much like niche and uh, and anonymity and that kind of thing. No, actually, like it's just the next evolution of the infrastructure, like as simple as that. Completely. And I, th I think then it allows you to have a conversation about what can it do, not mm -hmm. what was it and what did it enable. And I think that's the key piece there. And if you're sitting inside one of those institutions that is at the heart of the, the system at the moment, it allows you to engage more and go, okay, this is what this can do to really bring that transformative effect around the industry. Whether, you, whether you're in a centralized sort of player at the moment, you need to get behind this. You need to look at this and see where it can sort of take you. And I think regulation means that if you're sitting inside a regulated institution, it allows you to start doing more and more with this. Where, where it wasn't regulated, you kind of, it had to sit in the lab, it had to be a little bit at arm's length so you could look at it. But I think as it's coming out of its sort of awkward teenage years into sort of maturity, um, I think it needs to be properly looked at and understood what the benefits are. There's still a lot of risk. Um, so actually sort of getting some of that regulation, getting some of that. And Ali, you talked about the idea that people are now going to be able to be protected by some of these bank bank protection schemes. Yeah. I think it's going to be key to engage in things like this so that as a normal user, as your gran, you can sort of allow her to put some money into this and she's not going to worry about what's going to happen to it. I, I still think there's a long way to go. I still think Bitcoin's fluctuating far too much for it to be used as a day-to-day -day for for Grant to send you 50 quid on Christmas and your birthday. But there's, it's definitely growing up and it's sort of maturing as we go along. I have the perfect meme for that, by the way. I'll be sending out shortly of Crypto Web 3.0. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, uh, that is, is what I love about these sorts of discussions. That's the kind of thing that is seemingly so obvious, but you overhear it at a conference or something like that and it sticks in the back of your head and it actually kind of... It, it changes your your attitude to things so that's uh yeah that's absolutely golden there um for, for the record my, my gran is is definitely uh she, she's much more of a cash under the mattress kind of gal so i think uh it, it'll be a long time before i receive <laughs> cryptocurrencies uh uh from uh from her um cool okie dokie um i want to kind of go on to the on to the next uh, uh story um, it's from this great website called ffnews.com. Um, I highly, highly recommend it, um, which is about WISE. Um, and over the last few, especially over the last year, we've seen a bit of a rise in not just valuations, but the amount of cash that companies such as Clio have. Uh, in July, they raised 150 million uh, this year to at a valuation of 1.7 billion. Uh, and then uh, they also raised uh, 200 million at a valuation of 4.7 billion uh, less than six months later. Um, so they're, they, they've got quite a significant war chest at the ready um, and a good job too, because Wise has just moved into their space uh, and it's about 10 times cheaper than Plio. Um, obviously, there's a bunch of other people playing this space as well. Soldo in the UK is one of the ones that springs to mind. Um, but as a kind of 
it does seem that with all these international expense cards, it seems almost the the expense report, the paper way of doing things is dead. Um, but it also seems that if a player to compete with the likes of transferwise across Europe, they're going to have to maybe enter a bit of a, a price war. So are, are we starting to see a bit of a bit of a price war happening with these business payment cards? Uh, Sophie, I'll go to you. Go to go. To, have, you, have, you, have you used any of any of these cards? Um, I haven't. <laughs> In all transparency. <laughs> <laughs> like the the companies I have uh, worked for uh, in the past, I was more like paying and then expensing. So um, mm. so that was more like the, the the thing. But I totally see the value I have like worked on uh, on the launch of uh, of such program actually when I was at uh, at uh, Bankable uh, like back ten years uh, ago. And Bankable was pouring Spendesk, which is also a big um, a big one. Um, well, like uh, I. Yeah, I mean, like uh, going 10 times cheaper. I So I haven't uh, seen like exactly what's the proposal. I guess that's why is potentially looking to uh, to do some cross-selling uh, with other uh, other services. So that's the reason why they, uh, they are like uh, going uh, after it um, this way. That would be uh, the, the reason why uh, I think they would do that. The second question would be to, to wonder if it's the same target market they are going after because like uh maybe like it's uh it depends on like the the number of employees that is on the platform to uh to reach such um competitive rate but that for sure like probably worrying for uh for plio itself and uh i um i i guess it's now up to to them to see how they can increase customer lifetime value by actually like creating stickiness and launching different services um uh, that can really like justify for the customers to uh to pay uh like like much higher fees than for other uh with other competitors uh, yeah, I, I'm, I don't know whether it's going to be cross-selling or it might even just be more of a data game. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the more data points you can get, the, the better you're going to understand yeah. your customers, the more you can offer out. So maybe they're actually looking at this more from actually, what is it we can do with the data and what's the best way we can get it? So may, maybe this is a broad way of doing it. And if Clio's only offering that as a service, they're going to need to think, okay, what else can we do? What What is that value add that's going to make people come in? Because if the only thing you care about is price, you are just going to end up in a race to the bottom. So you're going to really need to sort of think about actually what, what makes you special? You go all the way back to your sort of initial pitch deck. You're putting yourself now up against these new customers. What, why are you better and different from these other people? And come out with that. And if you're not, you're exactly the same and they're 10 times cheaper than you. Then you've got a problem. Then you either need to pivot into a new area. What else could you do? Or you need to sort of try and find some of that mojo back and sort of really come back out. But I think it's going to be an interesting one because when somebody new comes in, obviously the first thing they'll do, they'll undercut you. That's great. So you've got your existing customer base there trying to build it up. You will lose some customers, but you can also sort of work to the fact that they've actually now created a huge buzz in this marketplace and sort of jump on the back of that. So you can see it as a complete threat and try and compete and slash your cost. You've got your war chest, but that'll disappear very, very quickly. Or you can really take as a bit of a sort of step back and go, okay, Maybe we need to compete a bit on cost, but what do we compete on features? We've been doing this for years. We know this space. This is ours. How do we prove to people that they're better staying with us? We might be a little bit more expensive, but we offer X, Y, and Z. So do people really just care about the cost 
And this kind of goes back to the mortgage point of the first one. Do you want cost? Do you want ease? You're going to want all of it. What it and I think it gives you a really interesting opportunity to look back at what your full value is rather than just looking at this as a, a cost-saving exercise. So if you're dealing with customers that sort of really, that you can really sort of get into, you can have that deeper relationship, that deeper conversation with, this is gonna make you actually have to do that. If you don't do it, conversely, a couple of months time, it's gonna be very, very difficult for you. So you've kind of got to wake up now and go, okay, there, there's somebody else here. They're, either they're seeing something in the market we're not, so what is it they're doing? Or actually, this is a really good market to be in. How do we make sure we stay in it? Very, very well well said. Uh, what one of my um one of my favourite books, and I highly recommend it, is uh, the Innovation Stack by Jim McKelvey, uh, one of the co-founders of Square, and uh, he basically built up this perfect innovation stack for for Square in the US, and uh, and then they had their biggest ever threat, which was a company entered their space with a huge war chest, a history of destroying competitors with a maniacal leader who can basically do whatever he wants, which was uh, Amazon entering entering the space. And I, I think to date, out of, I'm sure there's other examples, but they're one of the few companies that went head to head with Amazon. Um, and Amazon did, you know, from their diapers.com playbook. Um, and they actually, Square, not only survived, they thrived through it to the point where Amazon even turned around and said, right, you Square customers. And it wasn't about it wasn't about a price war. They stuck with their guns in terms of a product, stuck with their guns in terms of what they're offering their customers and their innovation stack. And you know what? Even people, um, their customer base as a percentage grew, their customer base as a whole grew, and they did incredibly well off the back of it. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious to see what, what Plio is going to do. I have to admit, I have I used Plio when they first launched. I, I was at the time it was a very very small business. Um, I I didn't want to leave too much money on kind of employee expense cards. That's how small we were at the time. Um, and so I was just saying, oh, you know, give me give me a call when you kind of have that as a as a credit card uh, sort of offering. So I think perhaps there may there's a demand out there for that sort of thing, especially on the uh, on the small business side of things when they're very cash strapped. Um, but equally, I'm also what is wise's play here because they're they've got a wonderful product offering um and i'm kind of thinking maybe they made a point of dropping the transfer from transfer wise so that they so you can have uh transfer wise wealth wise payment wise bass wise whatever it is wise so i'm, I'm kind of curious as to where i'm, I'm looking to, i'm going to enjoy watching this from the sidelines and seeing how it plays out uh, i think if you look at what happens over in china and places like this is exactly the day-to-day -day life of running a, a company like this in China. There are going to be a hundred people in your space competing with you tooth and nail. They'll start price wars, they'll start feature wars. And it's really a, the next level of evolution. It's the, the fittest will survive, which essentially means the most adaptable. So if they've come in, they've seen something you haven't, maybe you need to sort of be able to go, okay, we know this space, we can turn this around very, very quickly. Can a four or five billion dollar company really react in the same way that it could do as a startup? I think this is going to be an interesting space. I'm going to grab some popcorn and watch it along with you. Excellent. Right. We're going to take a bit of a, a bit of a wee break now. Um, so we'll be back after these messages. Do you want to be part of Breaking Banks Europe? Reach out and learn more about the opportunity to be featured in one of our shows. With over 1.6 million listeners and counting, Breaking Banks Europe is bound to become the place to advance critical dialogue in Europe 
and the UK fintech scene. Reach out on Instagram or Twitter at BreakingBanksEU or go to www.provoke.fm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Um, now, I, I had uh, a, a whole little bit planned. I was going to say, welcome to our favorite section of the show. It's uh, make ING's comms team nervous. Um, and I had a bunch of uh, of stories that I was going to raise up, but Kevin, Kevin's, and then it, it was going to turn into kind of like a nice little piece at the end that I wanted to bring up. But Kevin's ru- ruined this by by, <laughs> by changing by changing roles. So cheers for that, Kev. It's all. Uh, Oh, I, I, I just say maybe we should touch base more often instead of just inviting <laughs> me on once a year. <laughs> there we go. Um, the um, the story I actually wanted to bring up was ING working with uh, ING Poland specifically working with Thought Machine, um, as, as and we keep seeing a lot of these stories about. There's, there's countless stories about core replacements and such. But everyone seems to kind of be taking a different approach to it. There are some that are going the kind of sort of speedboat bank launch, a la Mox in Hong Kong, uh, U10 in the Netherlands, um, Metal in, uh, in 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 the UK. Then there's also the almost the regional uh, areas, which is what I think we're seeing here, where they're kind of going for right beginning of a thought machine with ING Poland. And then on the flip side, you then have uh, um, some great large scale projects, which frankly terrify me um but are also needed but i'm very glad that i've got nothing to do with those sorts of projects because that seems again if something goes wrong there it, it, it the, the ramifications could be huge so why what are our thoughts in terms of these these big core replacements even if it's even if it's regional um what's kind of the, the best uh, uh the best approach for this because if, if you if you know if you have say ing poland does a thought machine uh, and then uh, you then have Czech, uh, Czech Republic doing Mambu and then 10x in Norway. Um, and then all of a sudden, you've got completely different systems all, all trying to talk with each other. Um, so what are our thoughts on the old core replacements? And it's an interesting one, because if you look at most modern banks, they're mostly groups. that They've basically grown through acquisition, which means essentially they are a group of systems that have been connected together. Now, having sat inside ING, they, they not only sort of talk the talk, but they walk the walk around innovation. I wonder if this is a experimentation at scale. If you, one of my first sort of the section we talked about bunk, I talked about the fact that um, Monzo's got a cost to run a customer of two euros, whereas a bricks and mortars in the hundreds. Is this a way to actually try out these different platforms in a place where you've got a fairly loyal customer base that is fairly sort of young, upcoming and is prepared to sort of try these things out to try and find out what the next core looks like so it, it might be a case of rather than just okay it's crazy you're going to be going this way you're going left you're going right that if there's the coordination done properly they're actually going to set up these hypotheses to actually figure out what is the best way of actually doing this and what does the best core banking system look like it may have different needs we assume like Amazon, there's one platform that can rule them all. You have one customer ID. Maybe this isn't the case. Maybe there are some specificities around the, the 10X, the thought machine piece, the Mambu offerings that are needed in those different markets. Then you need to figure out how to connect them together. But because most of these modern ones have been built on modern platforms, you're no longer hooking together massive mainframes. You're actually orchestrating APIs which may make it easier. It's still not going to be the easiest thing in the world, 
But rather than looking at this as a case of, well, they're going one way, they're going the other, nobody's speaking to each other, there may actually be some method in this madness of actually trying to figure out what's actually needed for the local market. And then how do we bring that together as a single view of the customer? So rather than it just being these things being in isolation and then somebody goes to head office going, by the way, we've signed this. With the ING approach, they have a core fintech team. They have a fintech fund. So they've got all of this in-house in headquarters. So there's a probable chance that the fintech team is aware of what's going on and they can look at how do you bring it back together. So it could be anything from let's experiment to figure out what we've got or we've identified some core features that each of these don't have that are needed in the market. And maybe the long-term approach is actually these are the core back-end systems that we can use. So you've, you've got a need in France for X, Y, and Z. Maybe Mambu is the best core banking stack for that. But as a front-end layer, we can overlay that over the top. You can have one ING with different back-ends because you've got then the API orchestration layer. So you can take one out, you can <laughs> sort of replace it with other ones as it goes. If you don't have one core banking system, you actually have this modern API-driven orchestrated system that is driven by use case rather than just trying to create one thing that fills everybody's needs. Very well said. Um, Sophia, I'm going to leave I, you, I'm not you to follow that. So I don't know, but it, it's kind of, it, would, <laughs> it would make sense if you were thinking that rather than the worst case scenario is everybody's going off on their own shop and doing their own thing. I th yeah, so I, I would agree with Kevin. I think like basically all banks have different kind of uh, setup. When I was like <laughs> implementing the Fidor middleware uh, in tier two, tier three banks, I remember one of them that had seven core banking system dating from the 70s, seven, seven. So like the approach that we took at that point was to create something totally separate and then do migration basically. Um, uh, so you, you can have several approaches. You can have something starting from scratch and migrating uh, after, which is often what uh, tech people prefer because they, they are sure first that it works and then they, they migrate people. Migration in itself is like an exercise and sometimes it works and sometimes it works, but in a few days or weeks. <laughs> but uh, so that's the thing. Um but uh, otherwise, as Kevin is mentioning, you can also like focus on uh, replacing one experience and then roll it out. And it, it actually makes sense to use several providers. Um, so on top of core banking systems, sometimes you have like solutions that are called middleware that are, for example, uh, Fedor uh, was actually uh, one of them. You have Finastra as well, um, that would be uh, another. And below, you often have like different uh, core banking system solutions, and those middleware pull, pull things all together. Um, so it's it's not. Um, I mean, it's not like of. It doesn't happen all the time that you you select one provider for all countries. The last consideration is is the core banking uh, system uh, able to operate in those geographies. So a lot of uh, core banking systems are modern and can operate anywhere. But the thing is that the the role of a core banking system is actually to also help with tax uh, things tax. Things, reconciliation um, 
And in some countries, well, it could just be more efficient to take a bit more established players that already have some proof points than a whole new platform that you have selected for Europe, for example. So, um, and like there are considerations for an operational perspective, a cost perspective, but a user experience perspective. So that's the reason why like it takes a long time to actually change uh, core banking systems because First of all, you need to be really brave when you're the CEO signing <laughs> the bill, because uh, the truth is that um, we have seen in the past uh, um, CEOs signing those and getting like massive, um, uh, well, uh, costs that they didn't forecast it. And I'm not talking in the millions, I'm talking in the hundreds of millions. So first of all, it, it takes to be very brave to put in place a such strategy. I think we have arrived to the point that there is no way back because the former core banking system cannot actually um, uh, fulfill what is needed in, uh, in the digital world. But when you make that decision, you actually need to, uh, to, to take it from a rather global perspective and And even if it looks like local moves, often it's not going to be local moves. 100%. I, I was having a, um, this, uh, it's, it's always a classic debate, the Mac versus PC debate. Um, and someone pointed out, um, well, what do you use? It's like, oh, I use this, I use this. He goes, well, so your operating system isn't Mac, it isn't PC. What you use is Google Chrome. That is your operating system. And I was like, so it, it's, it's almost, uh, um, akin to that is what sits, as long as what sits above can communicate with each other it almost doesn't really matter i'm going to flip that slightly Ooh. that means what counts is the user experience layer yeah it's it as a consumer of a bank product i don't care whether you're running on a mainframe or a modern cloud-based system as long as you keep my money safe and you can let me do what i want we care about it because we're in this space but your average customer on the street really doesn't care What they care about is the app, it's the website, and if you can keep that seamless and you can then hide all that complexity away, it's exactly what you said. You can do whatever you're doing because Chrome hides away the complexity of Mac or PC underneath it. So yes, the core banking system is your operating system on whichever flavor you're most comfortable with, that's the one you go for. Your user experience layer, the Chrome on top of it, the applications you're going to use, as long as that is seamless across, then you're golden. I can assure you my gran, and I use her all the time with my litmus test, she doesn't care what operating system is being, what core system is being used. Excellent. Right, let's um, let's go on to our, our final story. Um, and I, I did touch on this a little bit earlier, but we've we got to talk about uh, the big bad Amazon, um, which is, uh, um, first of all, uh, on the subject of Amazon, I've got to highlight, um, just because it's hilarious, highly recommend uh, the Jeff Bezos versus Mansa Musa rap battle that's just dropped on YouTube. This is incredible with a huge amount of deep references. So uh, definitely check that out. Um, but the, the news uh, that's happened this week is that Barclays, in fact, is teaming up with Amazon to enable uh, customers to pay in installments. Um, Uh, there's always it's always a uh, it's a fan favorite isn't it to talk about what happens when amazon you know the bank of amazon enters the market for the smes with everything uh, and then if the question is well why why not why why have they not done this yet and it's because well it's a pretty regulated industry but this seems to be the the start of that um that partnership not dissimilar to the likes of uh, uh, apple uh, with the apple card in the in the us 
Um, so, so Sophie, if I, if I go to you first, what, what are your thoughts on uh, the big bad Amazon teaming up with uh, with Barclays for for paying in installments? I'm not surprised. I would say I think the big bad Amazon also teamed up with JP Morgan in the US. So I think it's just like keeping on, uh, like on on the same strategy of leveraging uh, like traditional banks at scales that can actually superpower uh, Amazon uh, banking distribution uh, across countries. So I think it's like a great. Um, I mean, it's a great partnership for for both. It seems like Amazon doesn't need to be regulated. Can offer banking uh, services like loans to uh, to its customers. Uh, Barclays gets a new distribution channel uh, with reputable brand that will bring them like massive volumes from uh, from the get go at no advertising cost at all. Like it just looks like a great deal. As I said, I think City did this a while ago as well. So City came out a couple, about two or three years ago with uh, the API that could sort of be plugged in to do this. And I think the interesting question is going to be about who's going to own the data. How much data are Amazon going to share back with Barclays? Mm-hmm. Or are Barclays sort of being reduced to being a little bit more than sort of smart plumbing? So I, th- I think the devil's going to be a little bit on the detail on this one. I, I think if you're sitting there as a bank, it's a very, very smart play. You do get that additional distribution channel. You just want to make sure that you're actually getting some of the data out of this as well. Yeah. Uh, if, if you compare it to what you've got, you've got PayPal and you've got, you can sign up with a direct debit to Amazon. So you can't use PayPal on Amazon. But if I were to buy everything through PayPal, all my bank would see would be every month or so, I just put a thousand euros into my PayPal account. They don't see the transactions. They don't see what I'm doing. They don't see what I care about. So they don't know more about me. All I know is that I, I really like this company called PayPal. So is this partnership with Amazon a partnership of equals? Or is it a case of Barclays have seen this as a smart way to actually sort of grow? But maybe they need to actually sort of think the next level of actually this is data. Amazon think data. That's what they are. They're a data-driven company that happens to sell products. Data is their bread and butter. So I think it will be interesting if we can ever sort of get into the details of what's actually being shared to see whether it's more the case of instead of just a buy now, pay later, they actually sort of go, Barclays offer you a loan. Great, I've got it. It's a distribution. Or do you actually understand what I'm buying with that loan, what I care about, where, where I am in my life? Absolutely, because I'm just thinking of that that information that Amazon would have as the types of products. They may discover that, you know, actually, you know, it's, it's say the average value of 150 pounds i think the minimum yeah the minimum spend on this is, is 100 but let's say it's 150 pounds um then all of a sudden they know that these are the kind of products these are the kind of basket uh that would qualify for it and and be able to kind of match uh, uh match accordingly um it it's interesting well it's, it's in the buy now uh, and, and to come back to your point about branding um we, we had we haven't we've had a little bit of a backlash against the likes of klarna um not like uh not like not like a huge tech lash, but I, I quite a, a a small one. Think, oh, is it the next Wonga and such? Uh, for the record, I really don't think it is the next Wonga. Um, but it, it's interesting that it, it is that that there's that there's that branding play that there is again. Can you see my grand? She'll probably trust Barclays more than Klarna. Um, but it, there is a slight brand element there. Um, I don't know if there's any thoughts on on the brand side of things. I think it comes down to trust. And I think one thing that the the high street banks have got over the the digital challenges, you walk down the high street and you can see them. And people of a certain sort of upbringing are going to sort of recognize that and go, 
I know them, I can go in and I can touch my assets. Uh, I, that type of customer eventually won't be as relevant as it is. But I, I think there is a the, the whole financial services, it's based on trust. And so if that branding, whether you are either as a millennial, you're going to trust Amazon more than you trust your bank, or the flip side of that, you're going to trust Barclays more than you trust Amazon. So bringing the two together, you kind of actually capture both ends of that market. So I, I think from a branding perspective, it's actually very smart teaming up with a, a company that does have massive global pull, massive global awareness. It, it's starting to put a few bricks and mortar street stores on the high street, but it's really about that sort of online 30 to sort of 50 are going to fully understand what Amazon is. Whereas, like you say, maybe your grand's going to trust Barclays more and she's going to see that there and go, oh, okay. I don't have to give out my credit card details to this faceless thing that I don't know whether I want to do. I'm not sure I want to do it. It it's, gets over that sort of friction, gets over that sort of hurdle by putting that trusted brand in a place where it's asking you to pay for it. I know this company, they're my bank. Therefore, I can trust this company that they've worked, they've worked with. So it, it's a sort of displacement of trust by adding the two together and you get the people who trust one and potentially don't trust the other as much and vice versa. So I think that this is a case of where one on one may well equal three for both parties. Absolutely. Um, Sophie, any, any any final thoughts on this? Nothing to add. I, uh, I agree with Kevin. Uh, he's wise, isn't he? <laughs> Excellent. Well, that brings us to the to the end of the uh, the show. Um, thank you again to the team at, at uh, Breaking Banks Europe for, uh, well, for putting this together and having us uh, having us all on. Um, Kevin, Kevin, where's best to find out uh, more about yourself? I, I need I need to find out more about you. Yeah, on LinkedIn, I've got the sort of current job I'm doing, the current company I'm working for. Um, so yeah, just reach out to me on there, or you'll find me as Junksock77 on Twitter as well. And if you if you're looking for me, you'll find me represented by my little fintech finance Funko Pop. I've got, I've got to get my, my got one? here as well. Yeah, cool. I, I had to get one for myself oh, as still well. Boxed. Collector's still edition. It looks amazing. <laughs> so you, you have to win one of the Cyboss quizzes, Sophie, to, uh, to to get one of those. Wow. Like, uh, I definitely need to make it a top priority because I am very jealous now. Um, hey, where best to find out more about yourself, Sophie? Yeah, so you can find me on, the, on LinkedIn at Sophie Gibo. Very simple. And I will answer. <laughs> Uh, I'm uh, at Ali Patterson everywhere. So thank you all very much for, for listening. Um, and hopefully, the time you're hearing this, we are either out of a lockdown or uh, there wasn't one and everyone's super healthy. Have a great, uh, great new year. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.